Hey, this is Joey the Pastor. And this is the Pastor's Brother. And you are listening to The Pastor With No Answers. All right, so we're talking about hell. And Jared, I want to ask you, is there anyone on this earth that you actually wish would burn in hell forever and ever? A person? No yeah, way. Like, no. <laughs> really? Are you kidding me? Okay. No. So here's the deal. Here's a Joey question coming at you. What if you had to pick one person to suffer eternal damnation of everlasting torment, and either you pick a person or everyone in the world goes, who would you pick? Or, I mean, would, would, would you take one for the team and go yourself? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that, really, that phrase really applies here. I mean, you can take one for the team by grabbing something outside in the pouring down rain, eating without a fork, using a slow computer. You can't describe eternal conscious torment as merely taking one for the team. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. taking one for the team, eternal conscious torment. Yeah, you're probably right. Okay, cool. Well, anyway, you didn't answer the question, so you just condemned us all to hell. Good job, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Wouldn't that suck, though, for real? Like, what? <laughs> like, sometimes, I don't, I don't know why I do this to myself, but sometimes I think of, like, the worst possible scenarios to be in, and then... After thinking about it enough, I stop and I'm like, I'm so glad I'll never, ever, ever be faced with that. So, for example, like if for some reason God said, hey, either you or your kids are going to go to hell, pickle. I mean, I would definitely go to hell for them. And I'm like, that would really suck to be like, I'm going to go to hell. Like I'm basically deciding to go to hell because I would totally go to hell instead of my kids go to hell. Do you think God has these thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe maybe he's having them and he's putting them in my head and he's maybe like, so. he's he's elbowing his angel saying watch this man he's actually gonna think about this <laughs> yep wow those are really messed up deranged thoughts so yeah yeah definitely yeah I'm a messed up deranged person so we we have a good show for everybody today we're gonna just jump right into it because the conversation goes somewhat lengthy and it, 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 I, you know. When I say it gets heated, it doesn't get heated as far as tempers. Yeah, tempers flaring, but it is passionate, and people are pretty confrontational. So we're arguing whether or not people are punished with eternal conscious torment. Hope you enjoy this uplifting podcast episode. Plus, one of the guys is a power lifter. All right, guys, so we are joined by our two guests, and we are really excited about this conversation. Uh, We're here with Sean Cole and Chris Date. Chris Date, a lot of you guys know him from the Rethinking Hell podcast. Uh, Chris, you're kind of the hell guy. Are you known for anything else? Uh, uh, well, I, I guess that depends on who you talk to. I'm, I'm known for being a, a preterist of the so-called partial variety, and I'm known for being a token Calvinist amongst all my uh, uh, annihilationist friends. I mean, I, I'm known for uh, known for powerlifting yeah. and um, yeah, a few things here and there. So, what's your most impressive lift? Well, uh, last time I just recently bench pressed 365. 
Dang. Um, it, <laughs> last time, last time I competed in powerlifting, I squatted about five twenty, and I and I dead Dang. deadlifted five forty. So whether whether those numbers are impressive or not, I'll leave up to everybody you have, listening. You have such a sweet, kind voice for those sorts of weights. Well, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, on. Well, how big are you? How big are you? Well, I'm I'm a big, huge, fat guy. I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, I, I'm tr- yeah. I'm trying to lose a lot of weight, and surely that contributes to my successes in lifting. But um, okay, uh, but you know, if, if I were if I if I lost a lot of the fat and got down to a healthy figure, I don't think I'd be any weaker. So that's a good sign. Right, so right, the, right. But yeah, but okay. I but I am only five about five seven. So you can imagine that if okay. I were uh, if I were not obese, you know, I'd probably be around uh, you know one eighty or something like that. So the power gotcha. lifting. Eternal conscious torment, doubting big fat guy. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> All right, Sean. So uh, yes, Sean. I actually reached out to what would you say his name is Lee Leafton Flowers. L- Leighton Flowers. Leighton Flowers, and someone told me that he'd be a good guy to talk to about uh, Calvinism. But I reached out to him with uh, to see if he wanted to talk about hell, and he said. Hell no, no, he didn't say that. But uh, he he actually he actually recommended James White, which uh, is is kind of a, a powerhouse theologian out there, and Sean Cole. So man, you were recommended with James White. I would kind of feel like if someone said, "Hey, you know, you heard of any good pastors?" and someone said, "Yeah, well, Rick Warren and Joey Svensson," you know, that would be really <laughs> awesome. So. Yeah, well, I don't have the bow tie that James White does, or the, yeah. or the bald head, or I'm not the cyclist. So, um, and I'm not a connoisseur of all things Scottish. So uh. there you go. So, are you a professor, or you just um, study a lot? Yeah, no, what? actually, three things. I'm a, I'm actually a local pastor, the lead okay. pastor of That's right. of Emmanuel Baptist Church in yeah. the thriving metropolis of Sterling, Colorado, nice. which probably nobody's ever heard of. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University teach theology and Old and New Testament and other classes. And I'm also a doctoral student at Southern Seminary in Louisville, getting ready to finish my dissertation and hopefully graduate in May. So nice. That's me. All right, so I hear all that, and I hear smart. He is a <laughs> smart guy. <laughs> all right, well, before we move into this discussion on whether or not the punishment for unbelievers is eternal conscious torment— we are going to have a little activity, and basically the activity is you choose. You know those books that says choose your own adventure? Y'all remember those? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is you oh, yeah. choose who goes to hell. So basically, I'm going to give you a list of four people, and you either choose who you have to send to hell or the whole world's population goes to hell. So it's either one person that you choose or the whole world is damned forever. All right? Is there a Joey, I'm a wuss, I can't no. answer this question option? You have oh, to no. All right. <laughs> so, I was going to rely on that. <laughs> Me too. All right, so the first one, Jack and Jill, and that's that's two and one. All right, so if you send Jack to hell, Jill goes two. Uh, Kermit the Frog, the Three Stooges, or Superman? All right, so you have to pick one of those groupings or individuals. Jared, go. Kermit Frog and his rainbow connection. Oh, my gosh. The little frog? You're going to send him to hell? (laughs) Good Lord. Okay, Chris. Uh, 
Uh, I'll say Jack and Jill since they're entirely fictional characters in a story. Oh wow! Okay, cool. Yeah, Superman's not. Cool. Oh yeah, shut Stop. up. <laughs> oh man, you guys, man, I'm a, I'm a big Muppets fan and I'm a big Superman fan and I kind of like the Three Stooges. Can I send one of the Stooges to hell? Yeah, which or do I have one? To send all three which of them? one? I would probably send Larry. Oh my gosh! <laughs> or maybe Mo. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell you what, you can even pick one of those guys that was just thrown in Shemp. near the like end. Joe? Like they had Joe, Joe. <laughs> and, and Curly Joe. Yep. <laughs> Curly Joe or Shemp? Maybe Shemp. Maybe Shemp. <laughs> All right, next one: Chuck E. Cheese, the Wendy's mascot, Bruce Willis, or Papa Smurf? Jared. Well, Papa Smurf's a sorcerer, so Papa Smurf. Yeah, that's a good call. Anybody that sends the Wendy's girls to hell, I really am going to have some major questions. All right, how about you, Sean? I'm going to have to go Papa Smurf. I can't stand the Smurfs. Yeah. So. yeah, all right, and Chris. I'll say Papa Smurf just so I don't stand out. Yeah, definitely. Papa Smurf, <laughs> you are a sorcery, repulsive little wizard. All right, uh, lastly but not uh, least, Judas Iscariot, Lee Harvey Oswald, Donald Trump or Christian Leitner? So that's Judas Iscariot, <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, Donald Trump, or Christian Leitner. Oh, One man. of them has to go to hell. Jared. <laughs> uh, well, Christian Leitner's still alive. Donald Trump is still alive. Uh, I'm about to go Judas Iscariot. All right. How about you, Sean? Oh, man. I used to be a Duke fan, but I've seen that ESPN. I hate Christian Leitner, and it's really tempting. But I will do the theologically accurate one and send Judas. All right. And Chris? Uh, yeah, I'll say Judas as well. All right. All right. Hey, just so for kicks, do you guys think there's a chance that Judas is in heaven? Anybody theologically, can Judas be in heaven or, or no. does the Bible make it clear he's in hell? Well, you know, Jesus said that uh, everybody that was given to him, he did not lose except for Judas Iscariot. So I, I, I suspect that that means that he's not going to be in heaven. Right. And if, if, you're, and if your nickname's the son of perdition, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump right into this. Um, <clears throat> like I said, the question at hand is the the four of us, and, and I, I know a little bit of background enough to know that the four of us, we all believe there's a need for a Savior. The four of us believe that Jesus is that Savior. The four of us believe that those who do not accept Jesus, they have to pay for their sins somehow. The four of us believe then that there is a punishment. The question, though, in, in which uh, the four of us differ in some way, shape, or form is, what is that punishment? Uh, so the, the specific question we're asking today is, is the punishment eternal conscious torment in the traditional view of hell, where pe- you see it on the cartoons like Tom and Jerry depicted <laughs> hell with the dog, the bulldog being Satan, and you know, basically... <laughs> Um, people are screaming and uh, yelling and in agony and torture forever and ever and ever. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I've been a Christian pretty much my whole life. I don't even know when the Holy Spirit came in. I just know we did at some point as a child probably. And hell has always really, really messed with me. Never caused me to say, God, I can't serve you for having a place like this where you send people to. But I'm telling you, it has caused a lot of grief and maybe that should be the case but uh i think for me maybe it even stagnated my faith for a while it's just a horrible horrible thought 
So what I want to do is start off, and uh, if you guys have a good memory, then you can use that here. Um, but if you have a pencil and pen, you might you might want to do this. I'm going to throw out three different possibilities. One of them will not be a punishment. You'll see what I'm saying in a second. But I want you to give me, biblically speaking, what's the percent chance that each of these are true? So obviously, add add the three percentages up, you should come to 100. So first one being annihilationism, second universalism. And when I say universalism, that means that Jesus saves everybody, not all lead, all paths lead to Jesus, but Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to save everybody. And then lastly, the traditional view of hell. So according to the Bible, what's the percent chance that annihilationism is true? What percent chance universalism is true? And what percent chance the traditional view of hell is true? So I will start by giving my numbers, and I would say, according to the Bible, I believe that there's an 80% chance that annihilationism is true. I would say, um, this makes me sound very heretical, but I would say 12% universalism and 8% traditional view of hell. Uh, Jared? Yeah, I'm going to say 68 Annihilationism, I'll say two, universalism, and I'll say 30 for traditional. Okay. Moving on to Sean. <laughs> Man, I'm going to be in a minority here. I'm going to put 10% annihilationism, 0% universalism, and 90% traditional. Nice. And, well, no, not nice. That's very mean. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Chris? You know, honestly, I, I would probably say 95% chance annihilation, 5% universalism, and 0% traditionalism. Okay. All right. So just so Sean and Chris have a little bit of background, uh, we, we brought we brought Sean and Chris on as, as kind of the experts. Now, my brother is a billion times smarter than me. Um, I, I'm just kind of a, a goofball that's seeking truth as well. And, I, you know, I guess maybe I'm relatively smart, but I feel like I'm a brand new annihilationist and that actually you know so if, if anyone thinks it's, it's you know big time heresy and I'm a messed up dude you get to blame Chris because I <laughs> <laughs> I started listening to Rethinking Hell podcast and it really just I mean I, I listened to the first two episodes with Edward Fudge and I was like I mean this guy is is tackling this topic scripturally his heart is burdened by people that are going to be destroyed once and for all. So for him, it's not like a huge win. And I was just like, man, I've never, I, I've always missed this. All these scriptures they're using, I, I just missed it. I, I cannot believe uh, that annihilationism uh, is, is probably true. Jared would fall in, in that same line of thinking, except you, his percentage level was a little bit lower. Jared, why are you not as convinced as I am at this point? Um, I guess because the way I look at this is kind of a paradigm thinking and I've been yeah. so part of the traditional paradigm for so long to where it's really hard for me to say, okay, I'm done with that for good. It's totally not right. wrong. I mean, while I think annihilationism is what the Bible teaches, I mean, I guess I wouldn't be shocked if eternal conscious torment was the way it was. Yeah. Okay. But that, that could, and that could just be to my upbringing, the paradigm we live in because it's tradition it's ubiquitous it's all around us that could be the whole part of the, the indoctrination process i don't know 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, so uh, so Chris is someone, and, and the guys that he's had on Rethinking Hell, uh, Jared and I have been listening to. Jared has taken the next step and read a bunch of books and all that stuff. So uh, we, we needed to find someone that was still a little more sold on the traditional view of hell, which is Sean. And, and I, I, think you can, <laughs> I think you can tell by the uh, tone in our voices that we, we respect that point of view. I mean, I, I believe sure. that point of view for 99% of my life. So it's definitely not something that we look at Sean at and just like, how, how in the world could you believe that sort of crap? So what I want to do is just maybe go through and, and set, you know, basically our, our listeners, you hear where we're all coming from. I just want to go through scripture that we've all read and we've all heard and most of us have taken it to mean the traditional view of hell. So I think what may be good is, uh, and, and we'll try it this way for the first couple of them, and uh, you know may may mix it up a little bit. But I'm going to say a scripture, and then I want Chris to you know briefly. You don't have to go into it in depth, but you tell us why you read this to be annihilationism and not the traditional view. All right. I think that sounds good, but would you allow me to take just 60 seconds or so to help our our listeners yes. understand what annihilationism yep. really yep. is? Go for it. Um, because it's often it's often confused, number one, for the view that when people die, they cease to exist and that's gotcha. it. And that's not our view. And number two, it, the, the picture that people have in their minds is sort of that God will snap his fingers at the end and people will vanish into the ether all of a sudden. But that's not our view either. And also people often have a misconception about the traditional view. We're not talking about disembodied souls floating around in the hell version of, of, of the clouds yeah. forever. These are, you know, both sides of this debate believe that all human beings will be raised physically from the dead. They will come physically back to life. And it's at that point that the two views diverge because the traditional view says that at that point, the resurrected wicked will be rendered physically immortal capable of living forever and really living forever the hearts pumping blood lungs expanding and collapsing eyes rolling in their sockets etc forever whereas the uh the conditionalist view the the, uh, it's short for conditional immortality holds that immortality is something that god will grant only to those who meet the condition of standing before the throne of judgment in in uh, with faith in christ those who do not so believe in Jesus Christ at the final judgment are going to literally die a second time. It, it will be a second death, but the death that extended only to the body in the first death will extend to the soul as well in the second. So this, so I just want to make clear that this view, this difference, is not a difference between ceasing to exist or existing forever. It's between living forever on the one hand and dying forever on the other hand. It's between, uh, it's between like a um, prison sentence forever on one hand versus execution on the other. So I just want to make sure that people understand the difference between these views before we get started. Okay. Yep. I appreciate it. I think that does clarify a lot. All right. So let's dive into uh, what I would say is is one of the most difficult verses to uh, reconcile to the conditional view, and that is Revelation 20.10. And I'll just read it. It says, And the devil... Who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it sounds that, and that that's where that's where all the people without Jesus will be thrown to. And it sounds like they are going to be in pain eternally. 
Why does it not mean that, Chris? Well, you got to understand, first of all, that Revelation is part of a genre uh, called apocalyptic. Um, this is not... John didn't receive a DVD with a recording of the future sent back in time and watch it on a TV screen. He's seeing um, future events foretold by means of vivid, highly symbolic images, kind of like the giant statue that Daniel saw, uh, or sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel 4, I believe it is, or kind of like the four successive beasts in Daniel 7, or even like, do you remember when Joseph is interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw seven healthy cows and seven sickly cows, and that foretold the future, but not because it had anything to do with cows. The cows were symbols of other things. So, So in Revelation, what we are privy to is this highly symbolic vision that John saw, in which, yes, John sees the devil, a gigantic seven-headed, ten-horned beast with a prostitute, well, formerly there was a prostitute riding on its back, and then a second beast with two horns like a lamb or, or, or a goat or something like that. He sees those creatures in this highly symbolic vision tormented forever and ever. But the question that we have to ask as uh, careful students of God's word is, what does this imagery mean in reality, and how do we determine that? And I would offer that all of the clues at our disposal to help us answer that question actually favor my view. So, for example, um, if we look a little bit later in the imagery, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire after being emptied of their dead. Um, But death and Hades, in reality, are not people or beings or even objects at all. Right. Uh, they, they are in the imagery. They're horsemen. Uh, back in chapter 6, I believe it is, they're the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Um, but in reality, it's, it's, it's the process of dying or the reality of dying. But people come out of Hades and death here in Revelation, and then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire after being emptied of their dead. And what I think any real reasonable interpreter recognizes is that what what the imagery is saying is that death and Hades will be gone. They won't be around anymore. In fact, what what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? That death is the last enemy to be destroyed. In the next chapter, in Revelation 21, God says death shall be no more. Hathanatas ek ek estai... Bless him, Lord. He's full of the Spirit. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Hathanatas ek estai eti. Death shall be no more. So, so that's number one. And then the other hint I'll give is that um, sometimes in, in apocalyptic imagery, divine interpreters come into the vision and interpret what it means for us and for the people that are seeing the vision. Um, and here in Revelation 20 and in 21, John and God himself interpret the lake of fire image for us, saying that it symbolizes the second death. And the key here is that throughout the Bible, when apocalyptic imagery is interpreted by an interpreter like this, the interpretation is what's always plain and straightforward in meaning. The imagery is perplexing and bizarre and frankly hard to understand, and we wouldn't be able to understand it if it weren't for the interpretation that was given to us. And the whole point of interpretation is to make plain and straightforward the meaning that is so wrapped up in this difficult-to-understand imagery. So John and God say that it means the second death. People will literally die a second time, whereas the traditional view says that they will go on living for eternity, having died only a single time. Sean, why is this a bunch of BS, man? (laughs) Well, let me just say that I agree with his hermeneutical approach to how you approach Revelation symbolically. I do agree with that. But I will say this, that I hold to the analogy of faith that Scripture interprets Scripture, and so you just can't take Revelation as a snapshot by itself, I think you have to go back to chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, and corroborate that with what's said in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And it really goes back to Matthew 25, 41 through 46, and I think they give you a composite picture of how this all works. Um, so let me just give you a couple points. Um, number one, 
I don't know if the word torment there semantically ever means extinction or annihilation anywhere in the New Testament. It, it almost always means conscious suffering in Revelation 9, 5, oh, 11, 10, oh, 12, 2, 18, 7, and 20, 10. Also, the phrase day and night, why is that terminology used? It clarifies the ceaseless nature of the restlessness. Hey, hey, Sean, I, I want to interrupt for just a second because I just want to make sure you understand. Now, wait a second, Chris. I, he did not interrupt you. I, I know, Good I know, but, but this, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, cha- <laughs> I'm not gonna challenge what he's saying. But, but notice that what he's doing is he's the language you're using, Sean, suggests that I denied that in the imagery people are tormented forever. But I didn't know such thing. I agree. In the imagery, people are tormented day and night, forever and ever. So I just wanted to make sure you understood. Right. That. Okay. Now, one thing that also is, is a hermeneutical question is: is the smoke going up? Does that speak of? A complete destruction and the smoke is a memorial to what has already happened in their ceasing to exist? Or is the text say it's the smoke of their torment that keeps going up and up? Assuming that the torment is what is continuing. It's the smoke of the torment. Um, Also, the grammatical structure of have no rest day and night is verbatim in the Greek text back to chapter 4, verse 8, where the four living creatures are worshiping the Lamb demonstrating unceasing worship. And so I think just, yes, you take those as symbolic, but I also think that when you have plain meanings in symbolism, uh, there's no imagery here of of any type of weird beast or numbers of seven. Um, There's pretty clear wording like day and night. There's the smoke goes up. There's torment. Uh, They have no rest. Um, back in chapter 14, it talks about unbelievers experiencing this in addition to um, the place prepared. Matthew 25, 41 says it, it was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And later on in that chapter, verse 46, it says the wicked go to that place. Um, so I think that it speaks of a ongoing punishment as opposed to the smoke going up as a memorial of past judgment. Um, and so that's the way I understand that passage of scripture. And by the way, this is this is why I encouraged you, and you did. I appreciate it. This is why I encourage you to listen to episodes four and seven of the podcast, because what you'll know from listening to that is that I wholly affirm that smoke is rising in the imagery from torment forever and ever, and that in the vision, people are tormented day and night, restlessly day, forever and, and let ever. Let me just let me so, clarify so, real quick, uh, real quick, Chris. That's the Rethinking Hell podcast. Just in case anybody. Sorry, I apologize. Nope. Yes, that's the Rethinking Hell podcast. So, so this is this is one of the problems is, is that traditionalists will oftentimes make arguments. From Revelation that really don't don't even begin to approach our view, because our view isn't that people are destroyed in the imagery. The question is, what does the torment forever in the imagery mean? Now, uh, Sean went to Revelation 14, and that's a great passage to go to to prove my view. And the reason is because the, this this picture of smoke rising forever comes from both Old Testament and within the Revelation itself to mean destruction in reality. So, for example, you've got Isaiah chapter 34, verse 10, where smoke rises forever from the from pitch and, and the fire that's burning day and night. That language is there in, in Isaiah 34 as well. But, this, but the picture of smoke rising forever from fire that's burning day and night in Isaiah 34, 10 is a picture of the city of Edom being destroyed. 
And this further harkens back to Genesis, uh, I don't remember the exact chapter, but where Abraham looks out on the plains the day after Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, and he sees smoke rising from it. So smoke rising in, throughout the Old Testament is a picture of complete destruction, and it's this Old Testament language upon which the vision draws here in Revelation chapter 14. But, but lest anybody think that I'm denying the doctrine of progressive re- revelation or anything like that, we can turn to John's own vision for proof of what it is that I'm saying. Because in chapters 18 and 19, John sees this, this, this blood-drunk harlot, this prostitute with Mystery Babylon written on her forehead. And three times in chapter 18, John sees this, this whore, this, this harlot, tormented by fire. And at the beginning of chapter 9, you see this hallelujah chorus crying out, hallelujah, the smoke rises from her forever. So we have all the same elements, smoke rising forever from fiery torment. But at the end of chapter 18, again, a divine interpreter interprets the imagery for us, throwing a rock into the sea and saying that so will the city be destroyed. So, so throughout both Old and New Testament, this, uh, Revelation anyway, the smoke rising forever is a symbol that communicates complete destruction. And as for Matthew 25, we can get there whenever you're ready, Joy. Okay. Sean, any response to all that before I ask another question? Well, I guess I would just say that I guess the burden is on the interpretation to say that the imagery doesn't mean what it means because you're basically saying the imagery is saying it's progressive it's eternal the smoke goes up but you're saying that the interpretation of the imagery is different than what the imagery is is that am i am i I understanding you correct i just want to make sure i understand your understanding your viewpoint yeah, but that's nothing new. Uh, when 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 jo- uh, Joseph sees the the um, or when he interprets the imagery for Pharaoh and he sees seven cows, uh, seven good cows and s- seven healthy cows and seven sickly ones, nobody says. Now you have to explain why there aren't cows in reality. Nobody does that. Um, and, and furthermore, we have it's you know more directly related to this specific debate. You've got Matthew eighteen, or sorry, not Matthew eighteen, Matthew thirteen where Jesus tells this parable of um, wheat and tares, and he says that when the wheat and the tares are separated, the tares are going to be thrown into a furnace of fire, and katakayo, the Greek means to burn up completely. Well, and then when he interprets that parable in verse 40, he says that so too will the wicked be thrown into a furnace of fire um, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and we'll get to that. But the point is, the traditionalist believes that image means something other than what it appears to mean. The traditionalist doesn't actually believe that the wicked are going to be burned up like in a fiery furnace like tares would be, no, they believe that they will live forever. So so both sides of this debate think that there are images that mean something more complex or a little bit more, you know, you have to dig deeper to get them than just by reading the words on the surface of the of the page. So so that doesn't really seem to me to be much of a challenge. All right, let me uh let me bring out something that was a huge eye opener for me when I started to read the Bible with conditional immortality in mind, I started to see all the places where it talked about the unbelievers die. The wages of sin is death. You know, whoever believes in me shall not die. Um, They will be destroyed and all of that. So I realized that for some reason or another, and I, I reckon it's because people told me that this is what it means, that was figurative for spiritual death. So in other words, hell did not mean someone died. It meant that they basically died forever and ever and ever. So in other words, if, if you said, hey, this person's going to be spiritually dead forever and ever, that means they're going to be tortured forever and ever. Would you say, Sean, that's that's a fair jump to say that if some that, that basically when someone perishes, that's a spiritual death, which means eternal torture? 
Yes. Yeah. Um, let's see. So let me look at, I think, and I, I've heard how this has been dealt with, but I not not to my uh, contentment is Lazarus and the rich man. So Luke 16. Yeah, so we can totally say, yeah, but this is talking about Hades, but bottom line is the dude was in such misery that he wanted Lazarus to get a freaking drip of water and put it on his tongue. So what's going on with this rich man? Why is he in so much pain? Well, the annihilationist can come at this from one of two perspectives. Okay, One is the perspective that's increasingly adopted by biblical scholars, which is that this is a, a parable, a story that pre-existed Jesus that he has co-opted and changed some of the details of to, uh, to, to teach uh, 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 some other message, and that it's not an actual depiction of what will literally take place in the afterlife. And once one decides to take that approach, then there obviously there is no challenge to annihilation. But let's say that somebody wants to go the other approach, and say that it's an actual, literal description of a historical event, which I have no problem with, although that's not my particular take on it. But if it were, then what you would, ha- what you would have to believe is that uh, in Hades, after a person has died, a lost person, uh, they will be tormented in, in what here is described as fire, although I don't know how in, in a spiritual realm you have fire and water and tongues, etc. But let's assume that all those elements are there. Well, then you believe that in the afterlife, the wicked suffer torment. Whether or not time is experienced in that disembodied state, we can't really tell. But for some period of time, they will suffer there until, as Revelation teaches, death and Hades will be emptied of their dead. People will be resurrected from the dead, as both uh, Jesus and Paul elsewhere said. Uh, and then death and Hades will be rendered no more. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire figuratively in, you know, in the imagery of Revelation. And so too will the risen lost. So whatever, what, however literally we want to take this passage in Luke 16, it really has no bearing on this debate at all. Let me, let me go back and ask you a question about death and Hades. Do, because if I want, I want to understand your position because do you see that as the intermediate state? Being, Do as, I see death and Hades as the intermediate, as the intermediate state? state that 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 is what is the, that is what has been put to death, not the eternal state. Because well, it, because the, because if you take because I, and I listened to your podcast about Lazarus and I, you know, there's there's a debates both sides whether this is the intermediate state in Hades or whether this is the eternal state in hell. But, well, just to be clear, there really can be no debate that what's being depicted here is the intermediate state. Number one, it uses the word Hades. Number two, his brothers are still all alive. And number three, right. the text says that they have been buried. So there right. really is no debate right. there. But but as to what gets you know destroyed in the end, I think it's death itself, meaning no one will ever die again. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last enemy that will be destroyed, which means that after all of God's other enemies are destroyed and all that remain are God's immortalized people who will live forever, Forever, nobody will ever die again, and so death will have been destroyed. Okay, so can I just back up just a little bit? Um, I guess the question that I'm having, and this may be more asking you questions than defending my view because I tend to like to learn what other people are saying. Can you explain to me biblically, because conditional immortality is the basis for the logical and the exegetical and the theological basis for where you get to the the end product of what you believe. Can you show me or clearly teach to me or or show where it says explicitly in the text that non-believers are not given immortality? 
Well, yeah, I think we can do that in a few ways. First of all, as First Corinthians 15, um, the context of which is all about believers, uh, it, it, and, and it says that the reason that they're, they're fitted with immortality is so that they can enter into the kingdom of God. Obviously, we're not going to say, therefore, that immortality is granted to the lost, because then they would be being fit for the kingdom of God. But it goes beyond that. We okay. can go to Luke but 20. That's, but that's an argument from silence, just because Paul I, is... I, de- I know, but I'm not done. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> all right. So uh, there's also Luke 20, I think it is. Hold on a second. Yeah, so Luke 20, verse 30, th- verses 35 and 36. Jesus is answering a question about uh, the, the, the wife who, uh, of multiple brothers. And in the end, um, the, the, you know, he's asked, Jesus is asked, whose, whose wife will this woman be? Now, obviously, the context isn't about hell. And so we can't be too dogmatic about this. But we have to take seriously what Jesus says. And what he says in verses 35 and 36 is that those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead cannot die anymore. So again, we've got uh, th- this statement that it is the saved who cannot die anymore. Now, I understand what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, it doesn't explicitly say that the lost also cannot die anymore. Chris is a mind but- reader, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a mind reader. But, but, I, but I've been through these motions enough times to know what they're going to say. But the thing is, is you don't get to rest your case on silence either. And there is nothing in the Bible that indicates that the lost will be made immortal as well. What we do have are reams upon reams upon reams of biblical data that says that the risen lost will die, perish, and be destroyed. So they can't be made immortal because that would contradict the reams and reams of biblical text that says they'll die, perish, okay, and be destroyed. So- so let me ask you a question then. So when in Genesis 2-7, when God created Adam, did and he breathed in him and he became a living soul, do you deny that at that point he was created immortal? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I would say that he was immortal bull. Um, you okay. know, the, Adam and Eve... Potential, well, hold poten- on, no, is that, is, I mean, does that word mean potential? Potential to be immortal? Well, right. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And had they persisted in obedience, then I think that they would have been made immortal and capable of living forever. But of course they didn't. And I'm familiar with the traditionalist argument. I'm sorry, you're about to say something. No, you said they were made, they could be made immortal if they had, if they, so immortality would have come later on in obedience to God's command, but not at the creation. I think that's the case. Now, I could, if I wanted to dodge the challenge altogether, I could say, sure, they were made immortal in the sense that if they had been left to their own devices, they would have persisted in life forever. But that wouldn't say anything about whether or not God can revoke immortality. And sure enough, that's precisely what he does. He says that on the day that you eat of the fruit, the Hebrew is dying, you shall die, which doesn't mean that you will fall dead on that day. Uh, quite the contrary, what we see in chapter 3, when the judgment is pronounced, when the sentence is pronounced, God says to dust, you shall return. And then later in chapter thir- uh, chapter 3, he, he, he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden for the express purpose so that they cannot live forever. So even if they were created immortal at that time, God revoked that immortality because they went on to die. Okay, so in the Imago Dei, in being created in God's image, that immortality is was what was revoked. Well, no, I, as I've already said, I don't think that the, the text teaches that, but even if it did, there's nothing in the text that, in, that connects that to the Imago Dei. As you, as you no doubt know, theologians debate you know, to no end what it is that the Imago Dei right. means, right. but surely there's nothing in Scripture anywhere that connects the Imago Dei to immortality. Um, so, oh, no, I would not grant you that. Okay. And so the, one, the two passages you'd go to would be 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Timothy 1.9 to show that Immorta- or that, that would show that um, immorta- immortality is only given to the regenerate Christians. 
Well, and Luke 20, and there's Romans 3, I think it is, or Romans 2, where it says to those who seek immortality, God will give eternal life. So immortality has got to be something that's sought. Otherwise, that passage wouldn't make any sense. And then, of course, there's the reams and reams of biblical data that say that the risen lost will die, perish, and be destroyed. Okay, can you give me some examples of those reams and reams? And, and, yeah, and, and, and tell me, and again, when you use language destroyed, what do you mean by that? Well, so for example, throughout the Synoptic Gospels, when the Greek word apollomy is used in the active voice and transitively to describe what one personal agent does to another, it consistently means to slay or to kill. And so, for example, repeatedly this, the Pharisees seek to kill apollomy, Jesus. Obviously, they weren't seeking to ruin him or to uh, separate him in some sense. They were seeking to slay him. Um, and so in Matthew ten twenty eight, when Jesus says, fear not man who can kill only the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather kill, or fear God who can apollomy in the active voice and transitively. Uh, both body and soul in Gehenna, um, we have every reason to think both contextually and because of the use of the word apollomy elsewhere in the synoptics that he's, he means slay or kill. Okay. And, I, and, I, okay. and that's, that's what I understand okay. die and perish so, and be destroyed So in every case in the synoptic gospels where apollomy is used, does it always and every time mean destroy? Or kill. No, but when it's used in the active voice, and when it's used transitively to describe what one person does to another, uh, my, uh, to, as far as I'm aware, there are only two places where it m- is alleged not to mean that, one, and they're both uh, con- contested texts in this debate. The, the, the one about, the, there's the one we're talking about here, and there's also the texts where the demons uh, say, you know, have you come to destroy us? And um, the annihilationists can treat those texts consistently, the traditionalists cannot. Okay. Uh, all right, so Second Thessalonians one nine, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Easy, easy to deal with, Chris. Uh, surprisingly so. So first of all, you've, you've read from a really terrible translation. There's nothing in the text. <laughs> there's nothing in the text that says anything about being shut out. The, the Greek preposition apa just means from. It does carry a sense of direction and so is often rendered away from. But I mean, earlier in 2 Thessalonians, it just means from. 2 Thessalonians 1 2, grace to you and peace from apa, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, apa. So it, it carries a meaning of direction away away from something, not that there's a separation that takes place and then something happens. So the question is, what does it mean to be destroyed from the presence of God? Well, I think that we have two really good reasons to think that uh, that this is very consistent with our view and not really consistent with Sean's. No, uh, and, and, and it's in verse, um, it's in the it's in the previous verse, verse eight, where G- where Jesus is said to come in um, flaming fire and in venge- inflicting vengeance. This combination of Greek terms is used together in one place in the Septuagint, and that's Isaiah sixty six verse fifteen, um, where God is the one who is revealed in uh, flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. And as everybody who's familiar with this debate knows, this that chapter ends with the enemies of God having been slain and their rotting, stinking corpses are being uh, are, are laid out in plain sight, being consumed by fire and by maggots. So eternal destruction in Paul's thinking is not life in torment. It's uh, dying a second time and forever. So that would be the same thing for Mark nine forty three. So basically, better yeah. to well, let's go. Go yeah, go ahead. Sean. And, I, and I think and I think if we're going to deal with Greek prepositions, I think you know almost every lexicon that you look at, yes, it is talking about direction, but it almost always means a separation or a way from. Um, well, what happens when you separate a branch from a tree? Okay. But the question it dies. Right. But the question then is not not 
the dying, the question that in that passage of Scripture is, what is the nature of eternal destruction? Right. And, and you know, look, if I said uh, somebody blew the ship from the water, well, then the, what would be communicated is that the water and the ship are separated from one another. But the question is, by what means are they separated? And in this case, it would be destruction. Uh, in the case of the tree and the branch, the means by which or, or what is produced in this case by the branch being separated from the tree is death. So if people are separated from God in eternal destruction, that doesn't really the separation doesn't tell us what happens as a result of that separation or what the means are by which the separation okay, takes but, place. But why does Paul use that qualifier eternal before destruction? Because destruction isn't inherently eternal, and the, the, the doctrine of resurrection proves as much. But why would he have to say that, though, if destruction is eternal? Because, then because destruction... Wouldn't that... Because destruction... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Because destruction can be undone. Um, like I said, the, the, the resurrection proves that. What but, Paul is saying is that the destruction of the finally impenitent but, is, is eternal destruction. Okay, but eternal... Okay, let me give you some... So, that word eternal, and, and let me just give you some lexicons, because Kittles, VDAG, Lonida, um, Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, four very reputable... Lexicons. When What's they a lexicon? Trans- is that like a transformer? Or <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's an Autobot. <laughs> it's roll out. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, they they define in almost every lexicon you look at that word "eternal" talks about a period of unending duration, a period yep. of unlimited time. And so, when those qualifiers are put there before punishment, it's talking about unending, ceaseless, conscious torment. No, well, no, not, you're, you're, you're importing some words that, that aren't there. First of all, you're talking about Matthew 25, not 2 Thessalonians 1 9. But in either same case, word, eternal. Yeah, but we're not, dis- we, we're not disagreeing over the meaning of the word eternal. What we're disagreeing about is what is eternal. So in 2 Thessalonians 1 9, you think that destruction is actually sort of a conscious process of, destro- of being destroyed. And in Matthew 25, you think punishment is the conscious experience of being punished. But those are things that have to be eisegeted into the text. They're not there. Um, so, you so, see the those, question- so you see those as completed actions? No, I don't think that punishment or destruction are actions at all. They're nouns. But they're, but they're nouns that, co- that come from verbs, and that the same is true of places like Hebrews uh, 9, uh, what is it, 9.12, Hebrews 9.12, where Jesus is said to have secured an eternal redemption. Um, we also see it elsewhere in Hebrews where it's eternal salvation. So here, let me just finish my point. My point is that punishment and destruction are nouns that describe either the process of a verb or the verb's outcome. And you think it's the process of the verb. I think it's the outcome because it must be the case in Hebrews 9, 6, uh, 9 12 and in he- the other place in Hebrews. Um, and in contextually, it's what fits Second Thessalonians 1, 9 and Matthew 25 better. So the punishment is eternal and the destruction is eternal. I'm, that's all I'm saying. And, and, you d- and you define eternal as the outcome, not the process, not the ongoing process. No, that's, process. In, that's not correct. I believe eternal is forever. The question is what destruction and punishment mean, not what eternal means. Jared, what do you think about all this so far? Well, no, I, I definitely think I agree with Chris in that, in that the word, you know, eternal applies to the outcome of the destruction or the punishment. Well, no, 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 no. Hold on. That's not oh, okay. what I said, right. just to be clear. What, what is eternal is the result of the verbs. Okay, so, uh, the, so take, take, for example, capital punishment. Nobody in their right mind thinks that the punishment 
that is inflicted in capital punishment is is the is the time that it takes to die. In fact, Saint Augustine, who was a very stal- stalwart traditionalist, um, said as much. He said that no societies understand that the that the duration of capital punishment is measured in the duration of time that one is gone from life. Okay, so the aftermath. So when. The ap- but yes, but the afterlaugh of the verb, the afterlaugh of the act, the aftermath of the act of punishing. But what is the punishment? It's not the ta- It's not the punishing. The punishment is the outcome of the punishing. So in the same way, the destruction is the outcome of the destroying. Right. That's what I thought you meant. <laughs> well, I'm pedantic, okay. so you'll All have right. to forgive me. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so so what I'm saying is that the outcome of the verb punish, the outcome of the de- of the verb destroy. In both cases is the noun punishment and the noun destruction. And that noun is what is forever enduring, everlasting. So I agree with that. <laughs> okay, <first>. cool. <laughs> and, and, I, and I understand that, but I guess my question is, even if – I'm going back to that the, the preposition, out of or shut out of the presence of the Lord. Um, just answer this question. I may be asking it the wrong way, but how can a person who's been annihilated be shut out from the presence of God if they no longer exist? Well, there's no words in the Greek text that are that are properly translated "shut out." All that the Greek text says is that they will be uh, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from apa, the presence of the Lord. Now, if I said that somebody was destroyed from the water or destroyed from the earth, everybody would know that what I mean is that the means by which they are separated from the water or separated from the earth was just their being destroyed, their destruction, um, or alternatively, destruction is the result of their having been separated from the water or from the earth. Um, so, however. however However you slice it, there is nothing in there about being shut out. And even if they were, I don't, I don't know why I didn't already say this. Even if they were, the question is what happens after they are shut out, if that's even what the text says and it doesn't. And So are you saying, like, like the, I don't know if the NIV translates it, but are you saying that there is a traditionalist bias put into our Bible translations to lean toward this, um, to the viewpoint of the traditional view? I can't read the translators' minds, but what I can tell you is that the NIV is in the minority here. Right, and I don't, and I don't subscribe much to the NIV as much as to other translations. Um, let me ask you another question about Matthew um, twenty-five. Is, is that okay if we go that direction? Yep, yep. And we, okay. act, uh, uh, unbelievably, we're going to wrap this up somewhat soon. So ask that question. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I've okay. got one more question, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, okay. In Matthew twenty-five forty-six, um, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you not see those as parallel of the same type of existence, eternal life for believers, and the same type of eternal punishment? Do you see those as as parallels? Well, what is parallel is the duration of what is in view. What is not in parallel is what is eternal. What I mean by that is you have here what I think is a very obvious um, do, uh, parallel and contrast simultaneously. On the one hand, you've got the parallel in the Greek adjective ionios, uh, translated eternal. But on the other hand, you have a very stark contrast, which is life for the redeemed and non-life for the lost, punishment. So no, I wouldn't grant you that there's any there's even remotely any reason to think that their that their um that their existence is somehow parallel. So how do you view punishment? What do you, how do you define punishment there? Well, this text doesn't actually explicitly tell us what that punishment is, but contextually it would be death because if anything cannot be granted at a lost in this text, it's life. Even though the but of course even though the word punishment may mean chastisement or. Or just punishment, ongoing punishment, not necessarily. Sure. And I guess I'm saying is, are you seeing this as the death, like the death sentence? 
this text doesn't explicitly state that. Other texts do, like Second Thessalonians one nine and, and Matthew ten twenty eight and others. But what this text doesn't does do is tell us that life won't be given to the lost. It's a contrast. In other words, if all we had was this single verse, eternal life for the redeemed, eternal punishment for the for the lost, at minimum we would have to say that the lost will not be granted life. Now, I understand that the traditionalist is going to say, well, life, you know, can mean abundant life, or it can mean life in the presence of God, or, or as Jesus said, it's, it's to know Jesus Christ, or, or what have you. Fine. But the point is, is that at least at the face value, the, the surface level reading of the text, death would be the punishment in view, not life in torment. Okay, but, but the words eternal before punishment... Again, the, these modifiers, why would they not just put punishment? They put these modifiers, eternal, 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 you know, day and night. Why are all these words put there? Um, because whether we're talking about death or any other form of punishment, punishment isn't inherently internal. But if the punishment is death, and if that death will last forever, then it's eternal punishment. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. The death of the wicked will be forever. It will never be undone. Okay, so you see it more as a condition as opposed to a, like a completed condition as opposed to an ongoing um, reality. Well, that's what the punishment and capital punishment is. It's, it's the result, it's the, the result of being destroyed or killed, and that result, that is lifelessness, will last forever in this case. So, so Chris, what are, your, what are your thoughts on the actual destructive process? Well, that's a, a good question, and, and conditionalists are, you know, you talk to 10 conditionalists and you'll get 15 okay. answers. Um, <laughs> the, text, the text in Scripture doesn't make it abundantly clear, I think, um, but I will say this much. J- Jude says that the punishment of the lost will be like the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, he says that, uh, he uses a Greek word, dagma, which means something like specimen. He says that the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah will be a specimen of what awaits the wicked. And if, and if, and if the parallel in Peter tells us anything, it says, uh, they're being reduced to ashes was an example of what awaits the wicked. So I'm inclined to take that very much so literally. Could, I think that the So wicked, you could view that as finite conscious torment yeah it's it's the punishing is finite in duration right. and and that act of punishing inflicts pain the way that i mean look when here's the analogy i often give people the person on the electric chair experiences pain but the pain isn't the, really the punishment is no. it it's the death that results from being killed on the electric chair right. okay let me ask you another question so what's so what bible verses actually talk about the duration of how long god either allows or how long does a person go until the death happens? Is it different by degree? Is it different by person? Are there different people in hell suffering for longer periods of time and then they're annihilated? Does it depend on how, like, a larger person will, will burn slower because he's got more meat on his bone? I mean, how, how does it work? You know, I, I, I'm aware of no texts that make that clear. Um, I know that there are some conditionalists who, in order to account for degrees of punishment, appeal to the infinite number of possible combinations of duration and type and intensity of torment uh, as, as the means by which they can account for degrees of punishment. That's not my take, but I'm open to that. The, the, the text just isn't clear. Wouldn't it be easier just to take eternal as ongoing eternal conscious punishment and not have no to because there's No, because there's nowhere in text where, there's nowhere in the Bible where uh, the, where in reality, torment is attached to eternal. You have that in the imagery of Revelation, but as I've already explained, all of the contextual indicators point in the direction of my view there. So the question that's before us, as, as careful students of God's word, is what is the nature of the punishment that is eternal, 
And we know that's death. We've got reams and reams of biblical data to support that. But as for what is the nature of what they experience while being destroyed, we have almost we have very little of uh, biblical data to go on. All right. So let me ask uh, Sean: Do you think that Chris is a heretic? <laughs> I do not. All right. Uh, do you think that? This is actually a logical, not logical, uh, a constructive debate, or are you? Do you see it as this is just? I can't even believe we're discussing this. No, I think it's. I mean, it's been personally beneficial because I, I've had scant knowledge of this view, and the past couple of days I've been having to dive into what tr- truly understanding what the view is, and right. so I think it's been personally beneficial. And so I'm not convinced, and I think there's, you know, obviously th- there's some issues that I still need to wrestle with. But I w- and, and I talked to Chris before this. I, I wouldn't consider him a heretic. I I would not consider this view heretical. Yeah. Um, I would consider universalism heretical. Yeah. I would consider. Um, you know, if you're going to go down that path, I, I would say, in my view, as kind as I could say, I would, I would say it's sub-biblical, but not heretical. Now, if you if you are right, Sean, would you say that Chris's view is harmful? The only thing I think it would be harmful to, would, and I've and I've read a little bit about this, would be you know the the um, motivation to do evangelism. Yeah. But from what I've and, and that, but but you know, either way you look at it, the bottom line is we both believe that those that are lost without Jesus are going to go to hell, whether it's eternal conscious torment or whether it's you know they cease to exist. Um, either way, the mandate for us to go share the gospel is strong because either one of those is not is not a good reality. Yeah. Well, and let me ask you, Chris, if if you are right, is Sean's point of view harmful? <sighs> That's a tough question. Um, I am a Calvinist, which means that I think God is in control of changing hearts, not us. And so the reason I say that is because many or most conditionalists are not Calvinists, and they would say that the traditional view uh, is a is a stumbling block to evangelism. I mean, look, we, we all know the gospel is offensive to enemies of God. But should we add more offense to an already offensive gospel? I think we can all agree that no, we should not. And the non-Calvinist wants to say that, uh, the non-Calvinist conditionalist wants to say that this is a barrier. The traditional view is a barrier to evangelism. Now, as a Calvinist, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. God can change hearts and minds regardless of how the gospel is presented. But what I would say is this. Number one, God uses means to bring about the ends that he ordains. And if he ordains that an unbeliever not be a believer, the traditional view of hell and evangelism may be one of those means. But secondarily, I would say this much. Um, I think the Holy Spirit blesses evangelism the closer, uh, the, the more accurately they reflect the biblical data. Yeah. And so if, if, if my view is right, and obviously I think it does because I've been talking way more than any of you <laughs> in this <laughs> podcast about it, but, but if my view is right, then I think that the Holy Spirit is likelier to bless evangelism that reflects my view than the kind of evangelism that would reflect Sean's. So let me just ask you a question. When you do evangelism, personal evangelism or preaching, do you teach or do you warn people of this? How do you warn people of hell? What, what, what words do you use to warn them of the dangers of hell? Uh, you know what? This is one of the most beautiful things about accepting my view. I can just quote scripture. The wages of sin is death. Um, and, and the free gift of God is eternal life. Uh, I can tell, look. Yeah, to me, the, the, the to, book let, of me inter- tells us, let me interrupt real quick. To me, it is so beautiful to think, because I, I'm, I'm leaning in Chris's direction here, and to think that I can say, look, you can reject God, and that's going to be the end of you, and he's going to destroy you, 
but he offers something more. Like, that to me yeah, is just unbelievable. It is, and let's be clear about something. Contrary to what traditionalists often say, Sean hasn't said this, and, I, and I'm and i thankful for that. Traditionalists often say that death is not something people are afraid of. That's baloney. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Let's call BS on that. No, death, is the single, yeah. death is the single greatest fear humans have unless they're in some sort of extended protracted torment, at which point, yes, they would wish for death. But no, under normal circumstances, everybody would prefer to live forever if that life were perfect and, and blissful, etc. I mean, look, Woody Harrelson, no believer by any stretch of the imagination, said he doesn't want to be immortal in the sense of his work being remembered forever. He wants to be immortal in the sense of living forever. Yeah. So, yeah, everybody wants to live if, if they yeah. could. Well, I, this... You know, we can't really talk about this, but I'll I'll say this: I I am not a Calvinist, but I'm I'm open to Calvinism. But I, I'll tell you what: when I was when I believe in a traditional view of hell, and I was entertaining Calvinism, I was just that's the most nightmarish thought to ever even try to reconcile. I mean, I don't even have words to put together. If Calvinism and the t- traditional view of hell is true, I'm still going to serve God because I don't have a choice. God is God; He's He. You know, he makes the rules, not me. He's just, I'm not. He's all-knowing, I'm not. But that is a hell of a thought to put together, you know, as Calvinism and the traditional view of hell. And people may call this a cop-out, and you guys may even disagree. I would say Calvinism is way more easy to stomach, honestly. And if, 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 if annihilationism is true, and if anybody pushes back on that, I would say, look, I mean, for me, let's just take one of my kids. It, I, I could way more easily sleep at night to think of them not existing than to be existing and be in constant torment. And I know that's, you know, getting a little detailed and stuff, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, I really appreciate you guys coming on here. Um, do both of, uh, Sean and Chris, do y'all think each other's smart? Yeah. <laughs> I think Sean's probably a lot smarter. Do than you got Sean? Do you think Chris is smart? I think he's pretty smart. Uh, Sean, do you yeah, think yeah. that Chris is a Christian? Yes. Do you think he's born again? Yes. Chris, do you think Sean's born again? Without a doubt. <laughs> I'm just messing with you guys. I, I knew you guys were going to say yes. <laughs> now, Jared, on the other hand, he's been he's, he's, he's been yeah, he's yeah. been texting me through the whole thing, just being like, "Can you believe these guys? This is unbelievable." <laughs> <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. It was it was fascinating to listen to, honestly. Yeah, and I, I'll say this, and uh, Chris, it'll this will make you feel really awkward if you disagree, but. <laughs> of all the people that I've heard on Rethinking Hell uh, podcast, it, it uh, Sean definitely brought up some really good points and asked really good questions. That you know, you uh, you debated Phil Fernandez and the seminary that I went through. I had I listened to maybe a thousand of Phil Fernandez's uh, lectures, and I, I I respect the man, love the man, but I thought all of his points debating you was tradition how things always were and i was like this is ridiculous like chris is killing this guy because phil's not necessarily going to scripture i thought it was crazy but well i appreciate that and i also appreciate that sean like me wanted to stick to the text i think that's wonderful but what, but I'll, I'll just leave the listeners with this what you discover when you when you begin to accept what scripture teaches on this topic and i know that's a little loaded of a way of putting it but what you discover is that there's nothing in scripture not even a shred 
of support for the traditional view. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean that people are stupid for having believed it. I, we could spend a whole other episode talking about why the view became so dominant. But I will say it is incredibly um, clear to me now. You know, There's a reason why I said 0% when you asked me that the question at the beginning of the show. That's all I'm saying. And the reason for the 5% uh, openness to universalism is because if eternal doesn't mean eternal, and of course I think it does, but if it didn't, well, then the question would be, could people be resurrected a second time after being destroyed in hell? And, you know, maybe that's a possibility. Um, All right, so Chris basically but, gets the last word, and he just basically said that Sean woo-hoo! is a dummy. All right, cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> what were you yeah, going to say, Sean? Well, I'm just going to say, you know, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm not an expert. I'm not a debater. Uh, I'm a local pastor and, you know, a seminary professor. But I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this, and I appreciate the, the cordial, um, the tone. Uh, just want to just plug real quick. I have a podcast called Understanding Christianity. Oh, deal with definitely. a lot of different issues. So if your listeners want to check that out, deal with a lot of different issues, and um, hopefully that'll be a benefit to them. But um, uh, thanks for letting me be on this. Um, I don't know <laughs> if, I, if I defended it well, but I did have a lot of fun and, and i appreciate you guys awesome so. so you said it's called understanding christianity yeah understanding christianity Making, it's an, yeah you just go to itunes sweet. yeah or very yeah. cool well thanks for joining us both of you definitely awesome. thank you enjoyed it all right guys thank y'all for listening to the pastor with no answers we thank you. We appreciate it. We really do enjoy doing this thing. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's P-W-N-A-P-O-D. That's P-W-N-A-P-O-D. We also have a Facebook page going on where people talk back and forth about some of the things that we talk about on this here podcast. That's at Facebook.com forward slash BC Pastor. Thank you, guys. Either happy early Thanksgiving or happy late Thanksgiving. We hope you all have a great win. And don't forget, this music in the background is from Dan Coke. You can go to D-A-N-K-O-C-H dot net. Some good stuff. We love us some Dan. You guys have a good one.